the demands of the home front are going to be so enormous that I think it's going to, in some ways, pull the United States in a bit more. So uh, we're not going to have all sorts of uh, time and attention and resources and political support, I think, for a large world role because the combination of the virus, the health effects, the economic knock-on effects and so forth, uh, I think there's, this is going to contribute to the sense of the United States retreating. Growing up in New York meant I was a Yankee fan, uh, meant I was used to winning. So probably there's some connection between that and the United States being the dominant. I was the Chicago Cubs fan, so I was used to losing. <laughs> <laughs> we are the yin and yang. One is, yes, we do need to repair the home front. I don't think the United States can be active and successful in the world if the foundations of American society and the economy are as weak as they are. And secondly, we've got to rebuild our alliances. Allies are our natural partners. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas and candid discussions from some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Richard Haas. Richard is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a veteran diplomat and a prominent voice on American foreign policy. He has served as director of the policy planning staff at the State Department and was a principal advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell. His latest book is entitled, The World, A Brief Introduction. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you, Mr. Secretary. Well, Richard, as you know, I've been an admirer of yours for a long time, so I'm looking forward to today's discussion. But let's start with your early life. How did you first develop an interest in foreign policy and global affairs? Well, it certainly wasn't by design. I grew up in New York. I was born in 51, so I came of age amidst the Vietnam debate. So that got me a little bit interested. But what really kindled it was a, a very indirect route. When I was, uh, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. And when I got to campus, Hank, I asked people, who's the best professor? And they said, it's Professor Frank. And I said, okay, well, what does Professor Frank teach? And they said, New Testament. And I said, well, that's interesting. That's, that's the one we never got around to in my house. We were pretty content. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, uh, I'm open to, to something new. So I signed up for his course. He was a fantastic professor. And we got to know each other. And he basically said, uh, what are you doing uh, over the summer? And I said, I don't know. And he said, come with me to the Middle East. We're going to do some archaeology. So I went to the Middle East with him, did archaeology for a summer, decided to spend my junior year abroad in Israel and traveling around the Middle East, learning languages and the rest. And very quickly, I realized I didn't want to spend my entire life looking at broken pieces of pottery. But I got very interested in the Middle East, came back to college, did a senior year, became a Middle East studies major. And then when I went to graduate school, broadened it into international relations. So it just happened. It wasn't by design. It wasn't by plan. It was just one thing led to another, led to another. It's fascinating. I'm always a little bit suspicious of career engineers, you know, someone that comes out of their mother's womb knowing exactly what, what they want to do. I started out as an English major, but you know, the thing that you show early on is that intellectual curiosity. And I think most people who are very good at anything start off with intellectual curiosity. To what extent did growing up in New York affect your worldview? 
not sure that it did a whole lot. Growing up in New York meant I was a Yankee fan, uh, meant I was used to winning. So probably there's some connection between that and the United States being the dominant. I was a Chicago Cubs fan, so I was used to losing. <laughs> <laughs> we are the yin and yang of, 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 of baseball. I think you know, New, York, look, New York is such an international city like, like Chicago, LA, and a few other cities in the country. Uh, but I, I'll be honest with you, it didn't influence me a whole lot because I didn't leave the country other than I think hitchhiking to Canada. I never left the country until that trip to Europe in the Middle East in my junior year of college. I didn't grow up in a family that traveled and so forth. So for me, you know, New York was just the world that I knew. And again, uh, what I think in a funny sort of way, it was in some ways so closed, the world I grew up in, that I was just anxious to discover it. It kind of lit a fire under me to, to get out of this cocoon that didn't expose me to things. And you sure have done that. Now, you've led the Council on Foreign Relations since 2003. Wow. So, and you've taken it to a new level. Tell us about the changes at CFR over the 17 years you've been there. And more broadly, how has the role of think tanks changed in America? Two good questions. I, look, we've made any number of changes, as you would, over 17-plus years. I think the single biggest change is the Council on Foreign Relations, when I inherited it, it was by then around 80 years old, was a what I would call an insider establishment elite organization. Essentially, they had to serve its members, the executive branch, Congress, the New York Times, people who had already voted or opted into the foreign policy conversation. I would argue the biggest change we've made over, over the years is to expand the role of the Council on Foreign Relations. So we continue to do all that. Foreign Affairs Magazine, our meetings, our studies program. We've tweaked it in all sorts of ways, but the insider authoritative, even if you want to call it establishment or elite role continues, hopefully better than ever before. The big, big difference is we've taken foreign policy beyond that. We now have become a major force on campuses and high schools. We've probably become the leading source of international uh, analysis and information for the people who give sermons every week in, in churches and synagogues and mosques. We've become a resource for mayors and governors, for local journalists. Essentially, we have, uh, both physically and through our websites, we have tried to bring foreign policy to a much larger, broader swath of the American people and people around the world more broadly, essentially to popularize and to expose it because too, I believe too many Americans, let's talk about this country, simply don't have the background they need to be informed citizens, to be informed voters. So what I wanted the Council on Foreign Relations to do was to try to, to, to fill that gap. You also asked about other about think tanks more broadly. Look, I think they've got a real role to play. I'm going to say something that some people aren't going to like, but for the most part, the universities have opted out of uh, what I would call policy-relevant work. So much of the stuff that goes on in universities is theoretical, quantitative, and the like. What often is required for a professor to get tenure removes him or her from the public debate, from publishing things without 3,000 footnotes and without mathematical models with squiggly lines. I can't even read, by the way. I do not understand the leading journals in the field of international relations. And on top of that, I don't see the relevance of uh, the leading academic journals, I mean, and the relevance of, uh, uh, of them. So I think what, what think tanks do is they fill that space. 
They provide policy relevant work, which the universities have opted out of. And people doing day-to-day -day journalism or day-to-day -day work in government either don't have the time or the background to do. So I think there's a middle ground that think tanks fill. They sure do. And I think now more than ever they're needed because there's a big hole that needs to be filled. Now, you mentioned your latest book entitled The World, A Brief Introduction. I think it's a terrific book. It's, it's one I've recommended to extended family and, and many others. What you do here is blend world history and foreign policy, and I think you do it brilliantly and concisely. You summarize modern world history and make it relevant to what's going on in the, uh, in the world today. So this is a book that I think that every, every student should read. I'm sure every student won't read it, but every student should read it. And I think there's something in your book for even experienced policy wonks. You know, I was, uh, I was surprised, maybe I shouldn't have been, of all I learned in reading your book. So tell us a bit about it. Where did the inspiration to write this book come from? What motivated you here? Again, it begins with a single story. In this case, I was uh, doing something uncharacteristic for me. I was fishing rather than golfing. And I met this young man, and he was a computer sciences major. And I said, look, I don't know a lot about computers or computer science, but I'm curious, what other courses are you taking? For example, how much history have you taken? And he said, well, basically, I haven't really studied history. And I said, how much economics or how much political science? And what very quickly became clear, Hank, is that he was going to graduate from one of the world's great universities, almost up there with the University of Chicago. And he, uh, he was going to lack much of the foundation that I thought he needed to be in order, to, for example, to be an informed citizen or to make informed decisions in his life. He was going to come of age in the 21st century, yet he knew so little about the world. He was going to be coming of age uh, in, and it turns out he wasn't unique. It's true of virtually every school in the country that while all sorts of courses are offered, they're not required. You can navigate your requirements. And if you're determined to graduate unprepared for the world you're going to enter, you will graduate unprepared and essentially uh, illiterate about the world you are going to enter. And then if you're as old as I am or we are, you know, I came of age studying about the Cold War. That was the context. Well, that, that's been gone now for 30 years. We came of age before there was cyberspace. Climate change wasn't even on the agenda 40, 50 years ago. So even people of a certain vintage, I think, need these things. You can watch the nightly news, and you're not going to get what you need there. The Internet has a lot of things. The problem is there's nobody out there helping you navigate the Internet, what's good, what's bad, what's serious, what's junk. So what I decided to try to do is to write what the Brits would call a primer, we would call a primer, but make it accessible. Assume nothing. So what I try to do is every step of the way say, here's what I think you need, but let me explain it to you. You don't have to have any background. I'm not gonna talk in jargon or shorthand. I just wanna make it as hopefully interesting but accessible as I can. And if you get through this, I think you'll have a foundation from which then when stuff bombards you every day as it does with the news, it'll give you a lens to better understand all that's coming at you. I'll tell you, Richard, that's easier said than done. And as someone who has written several books myself, you know, I, I find it easier to make uh, simple subjects complicated than to. <laughs> <laughs> That's a skill. That's a skill. Than to make complicated subjects simple. And so my question, this is a serious question. 
how did you take such a large, complicated, unwieldy subject and bring order and discipline to it? So what was the writing process like? Well, it was, look, I've done before this more than a dozen books. This was qualitatively different. Every one of my other books, I could assume the reader brought to it a certain background or they wouldn't have cracked the book in the first place. This was the first book I've ever done like this. So I had to think really hard about what to include and what to exclude. And then I had to constantly peel back the layers in order to make it clear, to make it intelligible. So if you talked about a treaty, you talked about an event, you talked about any idea, any concept, you had to deconstruct it. So it took more rewriting than any book I've ever done. And I don't know what you do when you write, but I also want to, after I finish a draft, I subject the draft to people. And in this case, I subjected it to a whole range of people, to experts and non-experts alike. Because it obviously had to pass muster with the experts. But on the other hand, it had to be interesting and accessible to people who knew very little about international things. So this took this actually turned out in some ways to be the hardest book I've ever written. There's, there's nothing harder, I found, than breaking things down. And I don't listen to things when I walk. You know, at least until recently, I was in New York City all the time. My office is right next to Central Park, the council's office. And I would spend a lot of time walking while I was writing this book, thinking it through, coming up with a voice. And the hardest thing was what to include and what to exclude. And it just took a lot of writing and rewriting. I could have told you that even before you answered the question, because to do something that's concise and accurate and relevant is not easy. So congratulations. Thank now, you. Keeping with the theme of large, unwieldy topics, let me ask you a big picture question and go to today's world. Mm -hmm. In what ways and to what extent will COVID-19 change the world? My answer is probably somewhat counterintuitive. I'm unpersuaded it will be a transformational event. What I think is, for most cases, it's going to be an accelerant, that a lot of the trends that were already extant in history before this, they're going to come, they're going to come sooner, stronger than we uh, had thought. I expect in a minute we'll talk about U.S.-Chinese relations. Well, this is a relationship that was already struggling, was deteriorating before COVID-19 came around. This has, in some ways, again, accelerated the position of the United States in the world was shaky before COVID-19. It is somewhat shakier now as a, as a result. Uh, a lot of people around the world in certain countries were dealing with uh, governments that couldn't deliver many of the basics to the society. We're seeing that in SAIDs. Uh, levels of debt were already high. Levels of debt are going to be even higher. There was going to be a problem with the disappearance of jobs. That again is accelerated. A lot of jobs aren't coming back. So for the most part, I think it's a familiar world, only more so sooner. The strange analogy that comes to mind, Hank, for anyone who may be listening to this who also cooked, is the idea of boiling down a source, uh, a reduction. It becomes more intense, more, more pure. And that is, I think, uh, what's happening. The one area where I, I think that doesn't apply uh, I'm glad to say, is where we've seen something of a turn in Europe rather than the growing unraveling of the European Union and the like, we're seeing the pendulum shift a little bit away from capitals, more towards the collective entity of Europe, thanks to German and French leadership. So whereas a year or two ago, amidst Brexit, the predictions were that Europe was kind of on life support, I think the feeling is now that Europe seems to have revived 
somewhat. So I think that's uh, one area where this uh, hasn't accelerated history so much as maybe uh, created something of a horse change. But most areas I find uh, fairly familiar, in part also, and I know it's the subject that you've done so much work on with things like climate, this has so distracted our attention that many trends underway, whether it's uh, climate change or proliferation and so forth, we haven't been paying attention to, but God knows they haven't gone away and they haven't gotten better. Absolutely, and this, this is a wake-up call because you know the pandemic was predictable and we were unprepared. And there's a number of other things which you've already alluded to, like climate change and proliferation and so on, which are predictable. And we better be prepared. So, and, and maybe you addressed this when you said it was as an accelerant, which I agree. And so in terms of America's position in the world, you, you would say that this has caused our position in the world to continue to deteriorate. So- It has for, se for several reasons just uh, in part that the message we're sending to the world about our inept handling of the uh, health challenge has led to a loss in standing. I think the distraction, the bandwidth this is absorbed. Uh, and I also think this will be a challenge, even if there is a President Biden come uh, January, the demands of the home front are going to be so enormous that I think it's going to, in some ways, pull the United States in a bit more. So uh, we're not gonna have all sorts of uh, time and attention and resources and political support, I think for a large world role because the combination of the virus, the health effects, the economic knock-on effects and so forth, uh, I think there's, this is going to contribute to the sense of the United States retreating from, from the world. A lot of Americans are gonna get up in the morning and say, paying attention to the world is a luxury we just can't afford right now. But let's go back to the world. So uh, how do you see America's core interests in the world? What are the things we should focus on when looking at America's role globally? I would say our core interests right now, I'd say there's, there's two in particular. One is the basic stuff that's been our core interest for the entire modern era, which is the basic stuff of, of avoiding war and promoting order. And that means pushing back against large or medium-sized powers that could start, you know, could, could initiate aggression and get away with it. That hasn't changed. You know, we have to worry about Russia, potentially China, and North Korea, and Iran, and so forth. That, that hasn't changed. What I think is different about this era of history is that at least as important, and I would argue increasingly more important, are global challenges. But the biggest threat to order in the 21st century will not be Russia or China, even though both of those will be challenges. It won't even be North Korea or Iran. It will be climate change. It will be terrorism. It will be proliferation. It will be global public health. Right now, it's COVID-19. The day will come when it's COVID-22 or COVID-28. So I think it's these global issues and the gap between the challenges they pose and the arrangements in place to contend with them. And I think that... So it's the traditional stuff of foreign policy, balance of power, but now it's also this gap at the global level between the challenges and responses. And so what do we need to do, Richard, to best protect us against the threats you've just enumerated? Let me suggest it in two stages. I'd say as an initial stage, we've got to focus on two things. One is, yes, we do need to repair the home front. 
I don't think the United States can be active and successful in the world if the foundations of American society and the economy are as weak as they are. And secondly, we've got to rebuild our alliances. Allies are our natural partners. We've got a dozen of them in Europe, we've got all sorts of allies and partners in Asia. If we're going to tackle these questions of balance of power, these questions of global institutions, we can't do it unilaterally. We've got to do it with others. And what we've got to do as a result is, is revive our uh, partnerships and, and our alliances. And then once we do that, then I think on the agenda, Hank, is what should we do about a climate change? Or what should we do about cyberspace? Or what should we do? We don't like the World Health Organization. What do we do about global public health? But we don't wanna, we, don't, we can't ignore it. We can't just do it by ourselves. For sure. So now we're gonna come to China. <laughs> now, this is an issue which you and I both believe is, it's a defining geopolitical challenge of this era. So, What's your diagnosis of the China challenge and what's your prescription? What elements of the current strategy, if you want to call it that, or the current approach toward China should be kept in place after 2020 and which elements should change? I think the element that should be kept in place is a recognition that China is a rising power that poses uh, real challenges to us, particularly in the, in the Asia Pacific, potentially even globally in, in certain areas, and current policies aren't that adequate. I think in the beginning, though, of prescription is, again, it should not be a unilateral effort on our part. We should work with the Europeans and even more our Asian allies, the Japanese, the South Koreans, uh, partners like uh, India in approaching China. And my goal, and I, I would think it's one you would sign on to, is we push back against China where it's required, whether we can talk about the mix of tools, if we see things we don't like, either internally or externally. But, and it's an important but, we want to protect the possibility. We want to preserve the possibility of limited cooperation with China where it serves our interests, say in dealing with the North Korea's missile and nuclear program, in dealing with climate change, in dealing with Afghanistan. So to me, it's a tough challenge to foreign policy hands to statecraft. How do we selectively push back? And I think also our pushback has to be, how, how do I put it, it has to be realistic. We, we're not gonna transform China. We can't be talking about getting rid of the Communist Party. We've gotta pretty much live with the China that, that's out there be up to the Chinese to, to ultimately reform their own country. So I think we've got to be realists about uh, China. And we've got to, again, be selective in where we uh, push back. We've got to join with our partners and allies in doing so. We obviously would like to avoid our differences from spilling over into direct conflict, say in the South China Sea or vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And we obviously want our differences not to preclude selective cooperation where on its merits, we would be better off. And I would just say, you know, to me, the biggest question, having just articulated that, is whether the two governments are up, are up to that. That's a pretty tough, it's not a one-dimensional foreign policy. It's almost a multi-personality foreign policy that we're going to be able to simultaneously have differences, manage them, and still cooperate where it makes sense. That is going to take a degree of deafness of uh, handling that I'll be straight with you. I haven't seen recently either government demonstrate that it's up to. Yeah, Richard, regrettably, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a formidable challenge. 
And I would add one thing, which I know you would agree with. When we look at our, our policies, we've got to match our policies with, our, with some realistic goals, as you said. And we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, we don't want to, in attempting to, to push back on China, do things that are going to hurt the United States of America more than China. And I think that's very, very important. Now, lastly, you've been a real thought leader on the Middle East. You know, as you said, that's where your interest in foreign policy began. So how do you view the recent UAE-Israeli agreement? Give us your insights there. I'm happy with the agreement. I think the idea that, for two reasons, that this is the third Arab country to normalize relations with Israel following on from Jordan and Egypt is, is a very good thing. Hopefully it'll lead to others. It also put on hold the Israeli annexation of big chunks of the occupied territories. And I think had Israel gone ahead with that, it would have destabilized Jordan potentially, potentially jeopardized the Israeli-Jordanian peace. And also, I think annexation is inconsistent with Israel's long-term viability as a democratic Jewish state. I don't think annexation is in Israel's interest. It's obviously not in the Palestinians' interest. So I think by putting that on ice for the time being, that was a good thing. So look, I'm happy with it, but let's not take out too much champagne here. The Middle East is still characterized by Iran as a threat pressing out of the nuclear agreement. You've got failed states in Yemen, in, in, in Libya, in Syria, potentially failed state in Lebanon. The Palestinian issue is as far from resolution as ever. So the Middle East remains the least successful region of the world by every developmental as well as geopolitical measure. So this was a positive development, don't get me wrong. However uh, unintentional it was in some ways, but it's a positive development, but we, we've got a long ways to go in that part of the world. Richard, uh, thank you very much. You know, your book, I, I found to be a very good primer on the Middle East, I, I might add, and this would fit very nicely into that framework. But again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today and have a good day. Thank you, sir, great to be with you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.